If you've ever struggled in your Christian life, then stay with us because today's message is just for you. Welcome to the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, inviting you to hop aboard the Bible bus for Dr. J. Vernon McGee's message, The Struggle of a Saved Soul. We're in the New Testament book of Romans, chapters 7 and 8. So while you grab your copy of God's Word and find your place, here's a quick letter from a listener. This one's from our Albanian programs. I am 36 years old and a single mother to a nine-year-old daughter. I heard about Jesus as a child, but my Muslim family did not permit me to read the Bible. Many years later, I moved and heard your broadcasts on the radio. The words you spoke touched my heart. Your messages were a church to me and my only comfort in times of need. Recently, I found a church, and now I have a place to go where I have sisters and brothers in Christ. Thank you for introducing me to Jesus and helping me grow in my faith. Well, if you want to join us in praying that God's Word reaches more people in Albania as well as around the world— You can join our world prayer team today by going to ttb.org forward slash pray. And let's do that now together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that encourages and instructs us. Help us to hear from you today, Lord, and teach us to live by your spirit instead of struggling to do it all on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, this morning we're talking about the struggle of a saved soul. The struggle of a saved soul. That which is, I'm sure, pertinent to all of us here today. At least I would say that the majority of this congregation and probably those listening in today are Christians. Dr. Alexander White, said that when any new book on Romans came to his desk, he always turned to the seventh chapter in order to see how the writer interpreted the seventh chapter, and that would determine whether he would read the book or not, because he felt that the seventh chapter is the key to the epistle to the Romans. It is true that the eighth chapter is the high water mark, but certainly chapter 7 is the key to the understanding of this great epistle that we have here. And Paul is discussing what we'd call the great doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification hasn't anything in the world to do with making a person perfect. There is a sanctification that we have in Christ that is perfection, that is a standing before God. And that is that which is always in connection with Christ when it's mentioned in the Scripture. Even Paul could say to the Corinthians who were carnal, they were babes, but he said they were sanctified in Christ. That is, they had a position in Christ that was perfect. And friend, this morning, you this morning are completely saved in Christ, or absolutely lost out of Christ. This morning you are as much saved as you will be a million years from today, because our salvation rests upon a perfection 
and that is the fact that he died for our sins, that he was buried and rose again, and Paul in the sixth of Romans says that that is exactly what happened to you and me. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised, we were raised, and we are now joined and identified to the living Christ. That's a position that we have. But our walk down here is something else. Our condition down here is not the same as our position at all. And therefore, a child of God today down here is in the process of being sanctified. If you want a distinction between being justified by faith and being sanctified by the Spirit, and always the work of sanctification in the Scripture is used in connection with the Holy Spirit. He is the one today that's working in the hearts of believers. Now, justification is an act. It happens the moment that you trust Christ that is the moment that you're saved, completely saved. Sanctification is the work of God. Justification is for us, and sanctification is in us. Justification is the means, and sanctification is the end. Justification declares the sinner to be righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and the power of sin in the life of the believer. Now, God has a program of sanctifying a believer that is just as orderly and just as meticulous as his program of salvation. God has one method of saving man. The Lord Jesus bottled it up and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He made it very narrow indeed, but wide enough for all mankind to come. But sanctification is on the same kind of a basis. God wants to work in us, but he's going to work according to his plan his program, not in an aimless, haphazard method that man might want him to work. I believe that that is, of course, the real problem that we have today. Now, God's program of making a sinner righteous doesn't mean perfection. So many people identify sanctification with perfection, and I do not think that should be done because we'll not reach that particular state, though there's some folk that think they've arrived there. I heard the story of the man who was a speaker, and in the lecture he gave, he asked a question. Who here has ever seen a perfect man? And so one night he was giving the lecture, he came to that place, and he asked the question, Who here has seen a perfect man? Not a hand went up. And he asked the question a second time, and again no hand went up. And then he asked it the third time. He said, I'd like to make sure. Have any of you ever met a perfect man? And finally, the hand went up in the rear of the auditorium. 
He said, would you please stand up? And the little fella stood up, a Mr. Milkos type of individual. And he said to him, have you ever met a perfect man? He said, no, I never met him, but I've heard of him. Well, he says, who in the world is he? Well, he says, he's my wife's first husband. And you can be sure of one thing, he'd heard of him. No question about that. Two girls were in college together. They'd been roommates. And after graduation, they hadn't seen each other in years. Finally, they met one day on the street. And one said to the other, are you married? She said, yes. And they both laughed because this girl says, I remember when you were in college, you said you wouldn't marry a perfect man. She said, I didn't. And my beloved, you think that one over before you dismiss it, by the way. She had not married a perfect man. In this life, you and I do not meet individuals like that at all. But the very interesting thing, God has a work that he wants to perform in the life of a believer. He will perform it according to his plan and program. And he makes it very clear that it's by our identification with Christ, by our reckoning upon that, and by yielding. And that, that yielding is an act of the will. It's not some supine, weak sort of a thing, but it's a definite act of the will of yielding to the Lord Jesus. It's the same word that's used in the 12th chapter of Romans, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. There it is for consecration. But here in Romans 6, it is for that matter of sanctifying or growing in grace or of perfection. For a child of God today should be growing toward that goal, because someday when we are in his presence, we shall be like him. Until then, there is a growth and a development down here. And it's not by adjusting himself to the Mosaic law. He was not saved by it, and he's not to live by it. He's saved by faith, and he's to live by faith. It's no adjustment to the Mosaic law at all. And therefore, Paul, I'm of the opinion he attempted that. Because I believe in the seventh of Romans, you have the experience of Paul. I do not think he would have used the first personal pronoun if he had not been talking about himself. And this seventh chapter of Romans is a chapter that I also, in my judgment, a child of God should go through it. Now, I want you to notice this struggle that went on in this man's heart because it is the struggle of a saved man, and it was the second stage in the life of the Apostle Paul. I think there are three stages in his life. That was that first period of which he was a proud young Pharisee. On the outward service, he was a man that seemed to have everything and seemed to be well satisfied. But down underneath there was that awful thing knowing at his life, knowing that he had not kept the law. Paul the Apostle is a brilliant young Pharisee, knowing the Mosaic law, could say, which he did say, he said, I can put nine of the commandments, the first nine, down on my life, and I can say that I keep them. 
I do not know about you this morning, but I'm afraid there are very few today that could stand and say, I keep the first nine commandments and have kept them perfectly and completely and absolutely. Paul said he could and that he had. I say that's remarkable. But he said that when you put the tenth commandment down on his life, thou shalt not covet, that that just turned up something on the inside of him. And he says, the law slew me then, because actually I was not keeping that part of the law at all. I did covet. Now, covetousness is a sin that you can commit, and nobody can be the wiser unless you admit it or reveal it in your life. You can't break the other commandments without someone knowing. Thou shall not steal. Well, you better be careful. If you do that, you'll leave your fingerprints, and they'll catch you, and they'll find the goods on you. And thou shalt not bear false witness. If you start lying, they'll find out about it. And thou shalt not kill. Now, I say to you today that if you kill, you will have a corpus delecti on your hands. And I'm told they're hard to get rid of. What are you going to do with the body after you kill the individual? You see, there are always telltale evidences that are left. But you can sit right here in the pulpit and you can covet, and nobody will be the wiser unless you admit it. And Paul said, Thou shalt not covet. And he says, That slew me. That part of the law, it slew me. I knew that I broke this part. And therefore, he found out that by the law, he could not be saved, and by the law, he could not live. He had to have some help from some other source. And now he begins to describe the struggle that he had. And it's the struggle of a saved soul, a man who has a new nature and a man who has an old nature. The interesting thing is that when we're saved, we never get rid of the old nature and we do get a new nature. And there is a struggle that goes on within. And that old nature is as bad as God says it is. That new nature is as good as God says that it is. I'm told that Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a Christian, wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to illustrate that, that in one person a man could be a Dr. Jekyll, but that same individual could be a Mr. Hyde also. And you have today that same thing in the life sometimes of a Christian. Sometimes someone asks, why does so-and-so, why do they live as they do? Or why do they do what they do? Can a Christian do that? Well, I do not have the evidence. I am not able to judge. And I must say that for some, when somebody comes along and says, I don't think they're saved, it raises a question in your mind. But they could be saved because all of us have that old nature. And I'm afraid today in fundamental circles we have set up 
certain guidelines, and we follow those. And if we follow those, we feel that we have reached perfection, whereas we may actually be living in the flesh. We may be living by that old nature that we have. Let me illustrate what I mean. Paul, in giving the estimation of the human family, as he brings them into the clinic, he says with their tongues they've used deceit, and the poison of asp is under their lips. Now, in that section, he has nothing to say about immorality. That's in the first chapter, but not in the third chapter. There's no mention of that type of thing. There's no mention here of these sins that we today condemn. But that sin that has to do with the tongue, with their tongues they've used deceit. David said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. Old Dr. Carroll used to say, I've had a long time to think it over, and I still agree with David that all men are liars. You and I have a tongue that's the most dangerous thing in the world, and the poison of asp is under their lips. And today there are those that have a wagging tongue a gossiping tongue, and that's not condemned in fundamental circles. Yet in God's sight, that tongue and that mouth is worse than a rattlesnake bite, lots worse. This morning, friends, you've got something in your mouth that's worse than any rattlesnake bite. It's a tongue. And when that tongue is uncontrolled, I was talking to a leader in Northern California the other evening I was in his home, he was telling me about a certain man, a preacher, by the way, that he and I have known for years, wonderful man of God, and a couple, a young couple, have absolutely wrecked him in the ministry with that thing called a tongue. How tragic it is today. And they are accepted in fundamental circles today as being a lovely Christian couple, but I want to say to you this morning they're more dangerous to have around you than a rattlesnake because they absolutely have wrecked the ministry of a man just because they talk. And this man who knows the situation, he said, McGee, there's absolutely not a word of truth in what they're saying, but they're vicious. They have that awful poison of asps under their lips. That's the most dangerous thing that there is today, is the human tongue. And you live by the flesh, this old nature, when it manifests itself. Now listen to Paul. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, the old nature, am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, that old nature, I allow not. The new nature I have protests against it. A Christian living out of the will of God is suffering from spiritual schizophrenia. He is the double-minded man that's unstable in all of his ways. He's trying to run in an old Greek race where the racer put one foot on one horse and one on another. One's a white horse and a black horse. And if they're both going the same way, 
it's all right. But when one horse starts going the opposite direction, you're going to have trouble. You've got to decide which horse you're going with. And that is the nature of a believer, the white horse and the black horse, the old nature and the new nature. Will you listen to what he says? If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it's good. But what I hate, the new nature, that do I, the old nature. Do you know anything this morning about that struggle? Have you been engaged in that struggle as a Christian today? Do you recognize that you've got a new nature? And John says that new nature won't sin. It won't. It refuses to. That new nature can even go down into the pig pen, but one day that new nature has to say, I will arise and go to my Father. And if it doesn't say that, it's not new nature. It's not the nature of the Father. It has to say it. Because you and I have a new nature. You and I have an old nature. And that old nature is totally depraved. The Count de Maestra said, I do not know what the heart of a villain is. I only know the heart of a righteous man, and it's frightful. Do you know anything about that today? You know anything about that old nature that you have? You never get rid of it. I think the greatest self-deception there is for anyone to think he gets rid of the old nature. John says that if we come to that position and say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And self-deception is one of the worst things in the world. That old nature that we have, this is the struggle that Paul went through in the second stage of his life. I believe that when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, that this brilliant young Pharisee, he now is saved. But now he says, I'll be able to keep the law. And he discovered he could not keep it. And this is the most miserable part of his life, as we shall see. This is the part of his life in which he was terribly unhappy. Dwight L. Moody put it in his quaint way when he said some people have just enough religion to make them miserable. A great many people today converted, but they're very unhappy because of the fact they're living in the flesh. And they can never be satisfied living in the flesh. I believe that explains a great deal of the restlessness that there is among Christians today. I believe that that's the reason that many are going today to a psychiatrist. I talked to a couple down in San Diego the other day. That's their problem. There's no other problem but that. They have a real problem. And the real problem is this. They are living in the old nature, and they can't be happy. I believe they're converted, and God will not let them be happy. My friend, if you can be happy in sin then you're not God's child, let's face it. Let's be very frank, very candid about it. You can't be happy. You have to say, I will arise, I'll go to my Father. Now will you notice this man Paul? Listen to him in verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, and now he explains what he's talking about, that is in my flesh, this old nature of mine, dwelleth no good thing. Have you discovered that, that there's no good thing in the old nature? 
Well, Paul says, I discovered that. And the law actually was given to control that old nature. It never was given for the new man. The new man's to live up above that. I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And he found out something else. There was no good in the old nature, and there was no power in the new nature. And I think that's where many of us make our mistake. We feel like now that we've been born again, we're a child of God, we can live for God. And my friend, there's no power in that new nature to enable you to live for God. And that's the reason many of us go through what Paul went through. We fall on our faces. We're miserable when we become a child of God because now we think we can grit our teeth, clench our fists, take ourselves by the bootstrap, and lift ourselves to any height we want to go. We cannot. The Word of God makes it very clear that there's no power in the new nature whatsoever. And Paul discovered that there was no power in the new nature. That is an experience I'm sure that many of us go through. To will is present with me, but that new nature wants to serve God. It has a desire to serve God. I remember an experience in this auditorium before I became pastor of this church. I was pastor out in Pasadena, and we had met a young doctor and his wife, and we were very much interested in them but hadn't been able to reach them. They were having an evangelistic campaign down here with an outstanding evangelist, and we brought that young couple down here. We sat right back here to my right. And the evangelist that night, it was Monday night, the day I took off in those days, and I never heard a better evangelistic message. And I was rejoicing in the fact this couple had heard it. And the evangelist then asked for a show of hands, those that would accept Christ. Well, it was a typical Monday night crowd. And I suppose everybody here that night was a Christian. No hands were lifted. And then he was not willing to leave it there. I wish he had. But he said, how many of you, knowing this is Monday night and all of you are Christian that are here, how many of you here tonight would like to live closer to God? Well, my brother, when you ask that question... I've got to answer it and say, I want to live closer to God. I don't know about you, but I do. I want to live closer to him. And so he said, put up your hand. I put up my hand. And then he asked for those who put up their hands to come forward. We came down here. I think there were 65 that Dr. Lindgren told me later. And then the evangelist should not have done it, but he said, these have come forward for salvation. Well, we hadn't. We hadn't come forward for salvation. And uh, then we were asked to go into the basement to the fisherman's club room, and Dr. Lindgren told me afterward nobody appeared down there. Well, I didn't. I scooted out. May I say to you that I didn't come forward for for salvation that night, but there was a member here at this church when I came here. He was a delightful fellow. He used to kid me, never publicly, but every now and then he'd come up to my rear and he'd say to me, 
reach over my shoulder and says, Say, I was here the night you got converted. And I used to tell him I didn't get converted that night at all. And may I say to you, but when you ask the question like that, every child of God is bound to respond. Now, I'm not asking you. It's purely academic now and forensic. But right now, how many of you that are God's children here want to live for God? Don't put up your hand. All of you want to, don't you? Every child of God must say here this morning, I want to live for God. To will is present with me, but how to perform it I find not. Now will you listen to Paul? And I drop down to verse 24. O wretched man that I am, even the new man, I'm wretched. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, the word wretched here in the Greek, it carries with it the thought of exhaustion. Actually, what Paul is saying, I have been in this struggle, I have been fighting this battle, and I'm weary of it, I'm losing it, oh, wretched man that I am. Now, Paul is wretched, and he's a Christian, but he's not guilty. He solved that problem back in the third chapter. And in the fifth chapter, when he talked about being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not tranquility. That's not the peace that he leaves with us today. And my peace I give unto you. That's the peace that comes to a sinner because he's trusted Christ and he knows that the penalty has been paid, and now he stands complete in Christ, and the peace of God comes into his heart, and that's the most wonderful peace you can have. But he's not talking about that here. He's not guilty. His problem here is this. He's not seeking for remission of sins, but how can he be relieved of the bondage of this old nature? That's his problem. I do not know all of you personally, but I dare say that's your problem today. It's my problem today. Now, will you listen to him? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a victory, and it comes through Christ. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, in spite of the fact that he's wretched, in spite of the fact he's been losing the battle, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. He's still a saved man. And there's no condemnation because Christ paid the penalty. Now, will you listen to him for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For the first time now he introduces the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to find that there is deliverance, but it comes now through the power of the Holy Spirit and not through him at all or even the new nature. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... There's nothing wrong with God's law, but there's a great deal wrong with us. 
God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And the reason that he came down here was not only to pay the penalty of our sin, but the Scripture emphasizes the fact that he took upon himself our human nature. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And he came into the world, took our human nature, went to the cross and died upon the cross in our human nature. But he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But he was made sin for us. And when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And that's the basis on which the Holy Spirit can come in and dwell us. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit couldn't touch us with a 20-foot pole. He's holy, remember. He's the Holy Spirit. But he indwells the believer today because Christ died. And there's deliverance for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And it's again a matter of yielding by the will. It's a yielding to the Spirit of God for he's come into the world to deliver us. Now I have only one illustration for this. And you'll forgive me for repeating it so often, but if you know a better one, you let me know. A good housewife gets a roast of a morning, if she can afford it these days, and she puts it in the oven. She begins to work about the kitchen, and the telephone rings. And she goes and answers the phone. She does. She pulls up a chair. Someone has defined a woman as one who pulls up a chair while answering the telephone. So she sits down and she says, Oh, it's Mary. Hello, Mary. Yes, Mary. Oh, I hadn't heard that, Mary. No, tell me, Mary. It's Mary on the phone, by the way. And she listens. And I suppose an hour goes by. And then she says, Oh, Mary, I smell my roast burning. And so she puts down a receiver she rushes into the kitchen, opens the oven, the smoke is coming out because the roast is burning. She goes over and gets a fork. She puts the fork down in the roast, she comes up, but the roast is overcooked, won't hold. And then she moves the fork over close to the bone, thinking it'll hold, won't hold. She comes up through. And then, being a good housewife, she goes back and gets a spatula. And she puts it up in under the roast, and now she lifts the roast out. What the fork could not do that it was weak through the flesh, the spatula is now able to do. And therefore today, what the law couldn't do, there's nothing wrong with it, that's a good fork. But there's something wrong with that overcooked roast. But now what the law couldn't do, now the Spirit of God has come in to lift us up, my beloved. And it is by that method and that method alone. 
Oh, today, the struggle that goes on among so many today, and that's not God's method. Run, run, and do the law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. Old John Newton had a tremendous conversion. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a wonderful thing. I want to pass on to you in closing now this statement of Dr. Newell. It's meant, I suppose, more to me than any statement I have ever read. Dr. William Newell says, Things which gracious souls discover. Will you listen to this? It may be helpful to you. To hope to be better is to fail to see yourself in Christ only. Have you ever said that, I hope I'll be better, and then you weren't? My friend, that's to fail to see yourself in Christ. To be disappointed with yourself means that you believed in yourself, didn't you? The thing worked out exactly as God's Word said it would when we believed in ourselves. To be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan of blessing for us. To be proud is to be blind. We have no standing before God whatsoever in and of ourselves. What is the problem today? The lack of a blessing today comes from unbelief, not from lack of devotion. I hear people say, oh, if I could just be more devoted to him. And then uh, you see them come again and again and again. And they will kneel down at an altar. I went to a young couple. I was speaking at a Pentecostal church in Memphis, Tennessee, several years ago. And the Lord blessed that morning with salvation, but the preacher wouldn't leave it there. He had over a hundred down. They flooded everything. There was a fine-looking young couple that came down. And I went to them afterward because I wanted to talk with them. I said to them, why did you come forward? They said, we want all God has for us. And I said, well, you're to be congratulated because there are not many young couples today that will say that. You want all that God has for you? She said, yes. I said, is this the first time you've ever come forward? They said, oh, no. I said, how often do you come? They said, we come every Sunday. Well, I said, have you yet got all that God has for you? And they said, no. Well, I said, had you probably thought it over that maybe this is a futile trip you make down here every Sunday? They said, tell the truth, we had. And we're very discouraged. I said, look, you don't have to come down here. That's not necessary. I said, I know people that have been coming forward for years, and they're not any better today than they were when they began. The problem is not lack of devotion. The problem today is unbelief. Many of us sit here this morning practical atheists. We don't believe God. 
He says today that what you can't do and what the law can't do, the Spirit of God can do if you let him do it. Dr. Schofield said years ago, he said, I was coming home from school and a bully jumped on me. I was a little bitty fellow when I was a boy. And this bully was a great big fellow and he jumped on me and he was just beating me up. He's on top of me. And he said, I didn't know what to do. I fought back the best I could. But I was, I was losing. He said, I looked down the road and I saw my big brother coming. He was taking off his coat. And he said, you know, when my big brother got there, he took that bully by the scruff of the neck, and I tell you, he says, he beat him up. He says, I crawled up on a stump and rubbed my bruises and just watched my big brother. He said, you know, it took me years because the old nature was the bully beating me up. Then one day, I turned it over to the Spirit of God. And now I'm sitting on a stump just rubbing my bruises, trusting him to do what I cannot do. We are never wonderful saints of God in whom he may justly be proud. We are his little children, immature, filled with foolishness, but he is endlessly patient with us, and he has bestowed on each one of us his infinite heart of love. He loves you. He wants to help you. But we must remember, he is wonderful. We are not. He's wonderful. We are not. Shall we pray? With our heads bowed this morning in prayer, I ask you to search your own heart. Maybe this wasn't directed to you today at all, but it was to me. I'm sure there's someone else here today. And your problem today is lack of trust in him. You're trying to live the Christian life by yourself. Our gracious, loving Father God, we thank thee that even the great apostle to the Gentiles went through a struggle. And, oh God, many of us today are in that struggle. Many of us today are losing the battle also. And there are today those present and those listening in that have to say, O wretched man that I am, we pray this morning that by faith, just as they were saved by faith, they may this morning turn the battle over to the Spirit of God and help them to see it's a struggle between that old nature and the Spirit of God and that greater is he that's in us today, the Spirit of God. We pray, therefore, that thou this morning will speak to many hearts here and listening in, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Are you struggling to trust God? Well, if you'd like to listen to today's sermon again, or maybe you want to share it with a friend who needs to hear it as well, The Struggle of a Saved Soul is available to stream or download for free at ttb.org. And every day this week on Through the Bible, we're going to go deeper into God's Word together. Now, we start off in Romans, traveling through our last two studies in that great book. So I hope that you'll hop aboard the Bible bus for what Dr. McGee calls some incredible scenery in Scripture. 
And then on Wednesday, we begin a fascinating new study in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. To get your copy of Dr. McGee's notes and outlines for these studies, visit the resources section of ttb.org and download a copy of our free digital book, Briefing the Bible. You can also order an abbreviated copy by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE. Or you can always write to Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Now as we go, I'm Steve Schwetz, praying 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit would be with you all. Until we meet again. Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.